Well, hi and welcome to Auckland EV. My name is Rowan and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I'm one of the pastors here and a dad. So what a great day it is to come to this part of God's word and to think through how we as Christians respond to the end of Philippians and think about how to live with indestructible joy. Let's pray together before we get into the passage. Lord God, we ask that today as we open your word, that you would shape our hearts and minds away around the way that you view the world. Please, by your spirit, grow us and change us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the majority of us spend our lives trying to find or win or build or buy happiness. Joy and happiness, they're the universal goal of humanity. I mean, how many times do you hear the words, look, as long as you're happy. <laughs> But that tells us that joy and happiness are not emotions that we always experience. Our joy gets robbed by all sorts of struggles, uh, the brokenness of our world, sickness, death, relationships, corruption. But it's not just the things outside of us that rob us of our joy. It's the things within us, our failure to do what we want to do. But what we want to be, we, we, we don't do to, to live and love as we ought, uh, whether that be living or loving others or ourselves. Seven weeks ago, we started this series in Philippians with that exact introduction, asking us, how do we live with a joy that's indestructible? And over the last seven weeks, we've been treated um, to, the, to the richness of God's word coming to us from the, the context of the Apostle Paul, uh, who's locked up in prison, but released by and for an indestructible joy. We've seen his confidence in the work of Jesus, his laser sharp focus on putting Jesus at the center of his life and sharing the news of Jesus so others might put Jesus at the center of their lives too. We've seen the incredible heart of the gospel, the creator becoming part of his creation to die in the place of his creation so we might experience forgiveness and right relationship with God forever. We've seen how important it is to stand firm in this hope, continuing to grow as Christians, to be more and more like Christ as we work and as God works in us, to be mature, united together as a local church, as one body without division. There's been so much we've seen over the last seven weeks. And today, Paul's going to leave us with a culmination of all these things and the key to having indestructible joy. Have a look with me at Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. We heard last week that our focus should be on the truth of Jesus' return. And as we wait, we are to wait living for his return. That's the reality we need to shape our worlds around. And we are to wait living in response to what he's done for us living his way, focused on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, on being morally excellent, on, on doing what is praiseworthy before our King. But the question is, what does that look like? So I've heard it said that the majority of the population struggle to take an abstract idea and turn it into a concrete reality. And what I mean is we find it hard to go from an idea or a principle and work out how we actually apply that to the way we live. We need examples. See, someone can tell you how to ride a bike. They can explain the principles of angular momentum, uh, that the faster you go, the more steady the bike will be and it won't fall over. 
but generally for the large majority of us, we need to see it in action to actually get it. We need to watch someone ride or have a go at it ourselves to truly understand what it's like. Well, the same is true of our joy and our contentment. We've heard the principles of what to do to be happy. And for most of us, uh, we've learned it from following the examples of others. I mean, think about your interests and passions. Right? For most of us, it was seeing someone actually doing that thing or skill that made us think, ah, oh, that looks good. It helped us to understand what we might actually like to do or the way we might like to think or the way we, we feel in different situations. We learn so much from seeing the example of others. So much of what we do and who we are is formed by our family of origin. The way we argue or don't argue, and the way we think about spending money, how we rest, how we speak. We're either in agreement with our parents or in reaction against them or somewhere of a mixture of those, depending on what we're like. And that's because we understand how to think and act and live by observing the actions of others. I mean, think about your approach to Jesus. For most of us, it's been shaped by influential people in our lives who've lived out the principles and commands of Scripture or have rejected them who have said, look, I don't believe Jesus is the real deal. And, and they've kind of pushed us away from that. And we've had to come and think if we've come to trust Christ um, on top of that, further than that. And if we do trust Christ, often it's been we've seen great examples of what people have been like and the way they live, the way that you sing, the way that you give, your attitude to church, the way you think about forgiveness and relationships and work. All those things are molded off others. It's a really helpful question to ask. Who have you learned from? Well, Paul ends this last section of his letter by providing an example to follow. Uh, the application of the principles he's been outlining throughout the whole letter. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says this, Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. See, Paul is the example we ought to learn from and imitate. He is the concrete application of these abstract ideas and principles he's been explaining. And so are the Philippians that we're going to see what they've done today as well. And both those people, Paul and the Philippians, are going to show us how to have indestructible joy. So let's look firstly at Paul and see what we can learn from him. Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me, Paul says. See, joy has been a consistent theme throughout the letter. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says he is always praying with joy for all of you in his every prayer. 1, verse 18, as long as Christ is proclaimed, irrespective of motive, Paul rejoices. He works for the Philippians' joy in 1.25. In 2.17, he says that even if he's poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, that he is glad and will rejoice with all of you. He encourages them in verse 18 that they should also have the same joy and be glad and rejoice. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in the same spirit, intent on the same purpose. In 3, verse 1 and 4, verse 4, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. He says it again and again and again throughout this letter. Rejoice, live joyfully in God, in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's what he's just said. He gives us an example here of rejoicing because of the partnership in the gospel. The partnership he has here with the Philippian church. That's what drives his joy. That's what makes him joyful. And he speaks here in 4 verse 16 of great joy. 
great joy. Now, there's only four occasions in the New Testament where great and joy are together like that. The first one is when the shepherds rejoiced greatly when Jesus was born in, in Mark 2 and Luke 2. Uh, the disciples then rejoiced greatly at the empty tomb in Matthew 28. They're like, Jesus has risen and there's this great rejoicing. Uh, the Christians, the early church rejoiced greatly in Acts 15 when God added to their number from both Jew and Gentile. And then Paul rejoices greatly here in Philippians 4 because of the generosity of the Christians in Philippi seeing the gospel go out to all nations. So the heart of joy is all about what Jesus has done. Jesus coming, Jesus rising, people trusting Jesus from every nation and people partnering together to see the news of Jesus spread to more and more people and nations. That's the heart of joy. And here in Philippians 4, it's this joy of partnering together with others in this gospel cause that brings Paul great joy. What is it that brings you great joy? Do you get that joy of partnering together for the cause of the gospel, of seeing people trust Christ, of seeing the news of Jesus go to the nations? That's what drives Paul. Serving together, standing alongside one another as brothers and sisters with Jesus, looking forward to the day Jesus returns, working together for the spread of his kingdom brings indestructible joy. When we lose our joy, it's often because we've lost our focus on Jesus. The key to indestructible joy is being captivated by Christ, seeing him for who he is. So that's why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's so captured, so amazed by who Jesus is and what he's done, that that controls how he lives and that he can be content in every situation. That's the second key to indescribable joy that Paul models for us. Learning contentment in Christ. Contentment in Christ. Look at Philippians 4.11. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. And in any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. See, you, if you are discontent with life, then you'll rob yourself of your joy in Jesus. Paul says here that he's learnt to be content in all situations. Thankful when his plate is full, when his plate is empty, when he has lots and when he has little. So often we think the key to contentment is to not have too much and not have too little, but have a balance of things. You know, a little bit like the Goldilocks syndrome. You know, Goldilocks comes along and she's looking for the perfect porridge and she finds the first one being too hot and, and, then, and then the second one being too cold. And what Goldilocks really wants is the one that's in the middle, the one that's just right, not too much and not too little. And that's kind of what we seek in life, isn't it? I don't want to have too much and be too rich or have too many things. But I don't want to have too little either. I just want to be in the middle. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that he is content if the porridge is hot or cold or in the middle. It doesn't matter the kind of temperature of his porridge or what life has been like. His contentment doesn't depend on his abundance or his need, but on who it is that strengthens him. I was reflecting this week on Jeff Bezos, who's the world's richest man. He's, he's a great example of this. He's got the, one of the best companies in the world, the most money of anyone else in the world. He's got his own plane, his own newspaper. He's even got his own space company. Like anything Jeff Bezos wants to do, who owns Amazon, right? He pretty much can. He had a great family, wonderful wife of 25 years. I think if I was Jeff Bezos at that point, I'd be pretty content. I'd be like, great, I can be content. You know, I'm a billion billionaire. <laughs> I've got all this stuff. 
but it still wasn't enough. He had to have an affair with another woman and, and divorce his wife. He's always in search of more. See, having the most in the world does not make you content. Yet Paul has learned to be content in every and any situation. Now, I hear that and I go, oh, that just must have been a gift of Paul's. You know, that's such a gift to be like that. I wish I had that gift of contentment. <laughs> but that's not what's going on for Paul. It wasn't a gift he just had. It wasn't part of his character. It was something that he says twice that he had to learn. He had to learn contentment. God took him through the, the classroom of the highs and lows of life. Uh, you hear of Paul's suffering, his sickness, his, his beatings, his shipwreck, together with the joys of the gospel work of spreading the kingdom. For him, his life had been like a roller coaster. But we must not tie our level of contentment to our level of abundance or need. Paul learned that in the plenty he had, he still needed Jesus. And in the times of poverty, Jesus was all he needed. Now, we need to be honest here. Some of us are still in contentment kindergarten. Well, we're in kindy. We're preschool. Our contentment goes up and down like a yo-yo based on how much we have. I feel it myself. Sometimes in just areas of life, when you're looking at going on a holiday and, and like, oh, this is great. And then other times not. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm more content now. I even see it in the numbers of people coming to church. When there's high numbers, I feel satisfied and content. Yes, Jesus is doing his job and it's great. When the numbers are low, I'm discontent because I'm like, oh, no, no, this isn't right. I'm not happy in myself. Now, firstly, that shows just how easily satisfied I am. I mean, three, four hundred people at church and I'm happy. I'm like, Rowan, there's 1.5 million people in Auckland who need to know the news of Jesus. <laughs> um, what is it that's making you discontent? The key to contentment is seeing the one who provides the content. If you want contentment, look to the one who provides the content of life to God himself. Paul says in chapter four, verse 13, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is like probably one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible. Um, if you've been around for a while, you might have knitted it and crocheted it and put it up on a wall somewhere. You might have just sent that as a text as the kind of encouragement to keep going. Um, people kind of take this verse and use it out of its context. Um, but what Paul's saying here is the key to contentment is not to use Jesus like a genie to bring about, you know, your hope and dreams. Like coming to Jesus makes you Superman or Wonder Woman. That's not what this end bit says. You know, he can do all things. <laughs> he can bring us to that point. Um, he's not saying that at all, that I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. So I can, you know, lift a mountain bigger than <laughs> Mount Cook. He's not saying that. The context has been through the suffering that has been there. He's saying that he is able to do all he needs to do in hardship and abundance only because of Jesus, because he's focused on Jesus. See, focusing on Jesus doesn't bring you everything you want now, but enables you to be content through every circumstance we experience now. Because you've been captivated by him. You've seen that in him you have all that you need. If every joy and happiness and comfort and pleasure imaginable on earth happened to you every day of your 80, 90 or 100 years of life, like imagine that, it still wouldn't even compare to one second in eternity. Oh, we're too easily pleased. We seek contentment in the wrong places when the God of the universe, Jesus, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant, died in our place and offered us forgiveness and life with God forever. There's no more mourning, crying or pain. 
The key to contentment is being captivated by Christ, the creator, the king, our savior and our brother. Now, Paul had to learn contentment as I do and you do. I mean, could you ever imagine yourself asking God to take away your abundance so you might find satisfaction and contentment in him and in him alone? That's a scary prayer. But Paul's putting before us this picture of contentment bringing joy. And that actually might be what we need. That actually might be what is best for us to give away that abundance so we would depend on our God. I want to challenge you to think through that, how God might make you more content with what he's given you. What that prayer does is show up our false securities. All those things that just jumped into our mind. Oh, that means I'd have to dot, dot, dot. I wouldn't want to live out without these things. I couldn't give up those things. Shows that we value the gifts more than the giver. But as we learn to keep seeing who Jesus is, as we set our gaze and our vision more on him and less on ourselves, we're free to live with contentment in all situations. With Paul, we can say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Strength to be content in my singleness. Strength to be content in my marriage, to be content in my childlessness or with the children he's given me. Uh, To be content in the job that I'm in, the house that I live, the holidays that I get, the intellect that I have. Paul says to live is Christ and to put anything else in that spot of Christ, to add anything else to the end of that line to live is, you end up robbing yourself of true contentment and joy. I can guarantee you, if Christ is not enough for you, you'll spend the rest of your life unsatisfied, discontent and disappointed without joy. At this point, you're here thinking through the things of God and seeing who this Jesus is. I want to encourage you to recognize he is the king. He brings real joy. He is the one who made you and loves you and died for you. And when you recognize who he is, it changes everything. When you see Jesus for who he is, you can stand with the psalmist and truly say what Psalm 73 verse 25 says. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We can trust God in our contentment. We can trust him because he will provide what we need. You see that in verse 19, Philippians 4, 19. And God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's example comes here with a promise. God will supply all their needs. Uh, The context of the Philippians suffering here is as they seek to stand firm in the faith, not being frightened by their opponents, as they demonstrate the unity they have as this local church, as they humbly love one another, as they shine like stars in the world, as they press on towards the final goal of being made more like Jesus. God will give them all they need and he will give you all you need as well. That is his promise. That doesn't mean we can't ask for a different job or seek a more suitable home or pray for a business opportunity. It means that our contentment will not be found in those things. Now we ask God knowing he will give us what we need. And we've got to remember that it's not that God wants to give us more, but can't. Like 
He's not sitting there going, look, I really want to give you more, but I just, I'm just a little bit stuck at the moment. I'm a bit strapped for cash. You know, I haven't really got enough things. <laughs> Everything is his. He's not stuck. No, he is giving us what we need. And at that moment that we feel like, oh, maybe I need more, we can trust him to say, all I need is Christ. He will give us what we need. So we might learn contentment and experience real joy in him, being made more and more like him. Friends, that is so freeing. I have what I have and I experience what I experience, no matter how hard or good it is, because God is giving me what I need at that point in time. What do I do within that situation? How do I respond at that time? Will I serve him? I'd be content that he's given me what I need and I live for him. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, that's Paul's example. But Paul also praises the Philippians for their example of indestructible joy. And he highlights their generosity in partnership. So here we see their generosity and generosity in partnership. Philippians 4.15 And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. The Philippians found great joy in partnering financially with Paul to aid the defense and the establishment of the gospel. They were gospel partners, chapter one talked about. They didn't seek their contentment on holding, in holding on to what they had, but in giving what they had to the cause of the gospel. Uh, they were not sporadic supporters of Paul, but consistent, wanting to give to him and giving to him regularly when they were able, when they were um, able to see that happen. And it didn't come from a place of abundance either. Uh, listen to this. Paul talks about the Philippians. Uh, they're called the Macedonians in, in 2 Corinthians 8. Listen to it. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped. Instead, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. See, these Philippians, they were impressive. During their affliction and trial and out of extreme um, poverty, they had abundant joy. A joy that evidences itself in incredible generosity. So often we find ourselves begging for money. The Philippians begged to give more money. Uh, we give out of surplus. They gave out of poverty. We give till it makes us a bit uncomfortable, then we stop. They were uncomfortable from the beginning, but they gave anyway on top of that. Friends, the cure for discontentment is gospel generosity. Not just in finances, but in our time and our energy. It will fuel your joy in serving Jesus. It will grow your dependence on God and his provision. It will be the best investment you can make. Uh, look at verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Right now, this is amazing. If you haven't seen this before, it'll blow you away. See, I used to think that those who gave to gospel causes were the kind of incredibly self-sacrificial, selfless people who just, wow, that's so generous of just giving this away, going without for the good of others. But Paul says here 
partnering in the gospel together, investing in the spread of the kingdom will profit those who give to it. In other words, and in the language of the original here, which is kind of more like a business investment language, investing in the spread of the gospel now brings interest and profit to those who invest when Jesus returns. He's saying giving to gospel ministry is actually the best investment you can make. Why would you invest anywhere else when you can invest here in the place that is going to bring about the most return? We get to share in the profits of those who've been freed up to preach and teach and lead others and for the spread of the kingdom. I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever led anyone to Christ? Some of you, you might be like, yes, I have. Others, not so many. But if you've been giving and partnering and working alongside Auckland EV, then we've seen probably around 15 people this year come to Christ. You've been part of that because of your partnership in the gospel. You can say, I have, because I've stood in partnership with the gospel, with the body here at EV, where people have told the news of Jesus and people have come to trust in him. Such a great privilege to be part of a body and to be using the gifts and time and abilities and talents and our funds for the spread of the kingdom. Now, I take it that sharing in the joy of knowing those who've come to Christ and stayed in Christ is part of that profit. It's not thinking that financially now you give $100, you get $1,000, you give $1,000, you get a million. He's not saying that. He's saying that you get to share in the work of those that have been freed up. The person who's freed up doesn't get more. You give more to EV. We don't get more as pastors. Um, what happens is we're able to see more gospel work go on and, and the, the news of Jesus spread more efficiently. Imagine spending an eternity with one or two more people because we sacrificed that coffee or that car or that property. Because we used the time and talents and, and, and funds we were given to partner with others to see more and more people trusting Jesus. Imagine spending eternity with them, them looking at us and saying, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for investing in what lasts forever. I want to show you the story of Edward Foster, who just models the joy of the Philippians in the way he thinks about gospel generosity. I'm Edward Foster, I'm a doctor. In truth, I never had that much interest in medicine. I had the grades and mum and dad really encouraged me to go for it and everyone says, don't do medicine because your parents tell you to do it. I was that person. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think my parents wanted me to have a good living so I could have a nice middle class life and be able to buy nice things and have nice holidays and be secure and comfortable. I didn't want that. No, I've never wanted that. I wanted to go and be a missionary myself, but actually what the unreached need is my financial empowerment to support indigenous workers. India motivates my work as a doctor. The other day um, I was offered to do a um, shift and they said, yeah, we can pay you 50 pounds an hour. I said, well, that means if, if I do 12 hours, that's 600 pounds. In a night, I've just paid for a missionary for a year. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. They say medicine is an amazing thing because you have the chance to save lives. But the truth is, doctors don't save any lives. All of our patients still die. All we're doing on our best days is postponing the inevitable, is putting death off. But the gospel really can save lives. So the same reason that people think medicine's amazing, they should be even more excited about the gospel. 
because that can save someone's life forever and ever and ever. It's a great story, isn't it? He's just so excited about gospel generosity. Not only does gospel generosity um, have an investment that stores up a treasure in heaven when Jesus returns, but it also shapes and molds us to be more and more like Jesus now. See, if I'm honest, some of us play it too safe. We haven't really experienced that jump of generosity. Uh, when we play it safe, we miss out on, on seeing God carry us through, on, on trusting Him, and it feeds our faith and our dependence on Him. Paul tells the Philippians that their generosity is a fragrant offering and an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. It's not that God needs it, but we need it. It pleases Him when we trust Him. Uh, when we trust that Jesus is enough, when we trust that Jesus is the most valuable thing and one in our lives, we see others come to know Him. When that is what we live for, it's good for us. It doesn't earn us brownie points in heaven or a better standing with God. No, everything we give is God's already. I think this Father's Day is a great day to remember that. One of the great joys of Father's Day is waking up and seeing what gifts the kids bring in. Uh, and this Father's Day, my kids brought in uh, a meal, uh, breakfast. They asked me what I wanted. And they kind of brought it to me. And it, I tell you, it pleased me, but not because I needed that meal. Like I paid for it. I paid for all the food they brought in. You know, it was probably uh, their mum that helped them work this out. It wasn't that I needed something that they gave to me but I was excited about this gift they've brought in them honoring me as their dad. I was pleased with them because they're expressing their love for me and their dependence on me. See, gospel generosity and service is part of our response to a God who's already saved us. It's our response to a God who's died in our place and risen again. It's in response to Jesus offering his perfect life so that we can give what he's given us back to God to be able to show God that we love him, but not to give us a better standing with him. So giving is just as much a part of the way we worship God as serving and singing and living for him. And all of it is only because of Jesus' perfect and costly sacrifice, where he gave it all on your and my behalf, that we can do anything that's pleasing for him. Because Jesus paid it all, I can give with what he's given me. Well, the Philippians, they partnered with Paul. But what's interesting, in, in verse 14, it says that they partnered quite early in their conversion as well. Uh, they came to Christ. And in verse 14, we see Paul praise them for their early partnership in the gospel. One of the things I've noticed in myself and in others is it's often the hip pocket. that's the last area to be converted when people come to Christ. Not so the Philippians. They're captivated by Christ. They're a model example. They want to serve him with all their energy, with all their time. And so they long to give to partner. Well, a few years ago, I went uh, to Israel and did a master's paper in the archaeological backgrounds of the Bible. And I brought back two things. First thing I brought back was an oil lamp. Uh, this lamp is a first century lamp from, from the first century. It's, it's legitimate and real. Um, and I bought this because of what Jesus says in Luke 12. He says this, Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks on it, on the door, they can open the door for him at once. All right, this is a first century lamp. It's possible, though pretty unlikely, that as Jesus told that story, he was looking at this very lamp. This was there at that point in Jerusalem. I bought it from the city of David, right in that point of the Jerusalem old city. 
And when Jesus spoke those words, he was reminding people to, to remember that we need to be waiting for his return. The reason I bought it wasn't because of its historic value, but as a reminder, as a kind of a symbol to help me to keep going, to keep waiting expectantly for God's return, for my master to come back, to persevere, to live life now where to live is Christ and to die is gain because Jesus is coming back. And so I want to remember he's coming back and keep living for him. But the second thing that I brought back were these two coins. Now, they didn't look much. Actually, they weren't very much. They were quite cheap, like about $10 each. Uh, but these two coins are first century coins called a mitre or a lepton. Now, they were kind of the smallest denomination that was there that you could, you could use at that time. They're not, they're not very fancy now, but they were actually there in the first century. And why I bought them was because of this reminder. Because in Luke 21, Jesus says these words. Jesus looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins, two lepers, two mitres. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Now, again, it's possible that the two coins Jesus spoke of were those exact two coins I was holding in my hand. It's possible. They were probably there. Totally unlikely. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if they were there or not, because their value isn't in being the same ones that the Bible references, but allowing what Jesus symbolizes in each of them to change the way I live. That's why I bought them. See, as I wait for Jesus' return, expectantly living for him, keeping the lamp burning, giving all that I have for his service and glory, that's what I wanted to be reminded of to give all that I have. Rowan, don't hold on to the little you have. Learn from the widow, learn from the Philippians, learn from Paul, the joy of gospel generosity. And so today, as we think through, how do I live my life with a joy that's indestructible? Paul has held out to us the example of the Philippians and of himself, of living for Jesus, of putting Jesus at the center of his life, so that he might be captured by him and then generously serving him in every way. Why don't we pray that we might live for the name of Jesus in everything, that he'd send us out with the summary of this book in our minds to live his Christ, to die his gain with great gospel joy. Let's pray. Father God, today, as we think about how to live for you and how to live with joy, we ask you'd fix our eyes on the contentment that comes from living for Christ. Show us where we're discontent. Show us where we're looking to find our identity and our uh, security in areas other than the gospel, other than Christ. And help us to fill those voids, those holes with the truer and greater picture of your son. And Lord, help us to take generous risks with our time, with our energy, with the talents you've given us. Help us to be a people that partner together for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.